0: Well, we are in the last week of our community Bible experience. Can you believe it? How far are you? Tell me when to stop. <laughs> it's been pretty amazing. I know there's been lots of questions raised. We're going to take extra time today for questions. Um, I'm just going to share a short message this morning, and then we're going to open it up to question time, and Olin will roam around with the mic. So be thinking already of some of just the general questions that might have come up for you during these last couple months, as you've read through and you've discussed in your connect groups through a variety of things I know from, from the New Testament. We're going to get ready for that. Uh, next week, I can't believe it, but we're actually in our first Sunday of Advent. Not only is it the special one service at 1030, but it's the first Sunday of Advent. Surprise! <laughs> yeah, I know. Christmas is coming, and we're already going to be on on the big countdown. But for this morning, before we get into our question and answer time, let me just share for you a few moments something that really encouraged me this week in our reading that came from First John. I was super encouraged this week when I opened up First John and read the words about sin. Is it possible to be encouraged about what the Bible says about sin? Yeah, it is. I was really encouraged, and so for a few moments, I just want to share with you, because sin, even though it is devastating, and even though we can all attest to ways that sin has, has destroyed things in our lives, and some of us have had experiences where we, because of what we've done, you know, mistakes we've made and hurts we've caused, we've... Destroy things, we also have experienced things where others have done things that have hurt us, we can attest to the devastating consequences of sin. But what we read in First John, what we read in all the Bible, is we begin to realize that sin, because of God's grace and because of what Jesus has done, is no longer able to destroy the way it once could. I'm reading from 1 John 1, verse 5, to chapter 2, verse 2, and it's on an insert in your bulletin. If you want to follow along uh, in, 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 that, in an insert or, or in the Bible that you brought with you or maybe one that's even in the seats. Here it is. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. What struck me about this, again, was just how honest we are able to be about sin because of how great the grace of God really is. We can be really truthfully, brutally honest about the sin that's in our lives, the sin that's in our world, because of how big the grace of God is. You see, if we don't know about the grace of God, if we don't understand the forgiveness of Jesus, if we're unaware or maybe unconvinced of the atoning sacrifice of Jesus for the sins of the whole world, then we try to do something else with our sin. We have a variety of ways we try to deal with sin. Let's rattle through a few of them. One of them is we just try to hide it. There's something going on in our lives. We're maybe ashamed of it. uh, We're not sure what's going on. There's something going on in our family. And we try to hide it from view. Maybe we try to hide it from ourselves, but we certainly try to hide it from others. Another way of dealing with sin is we simply deny it. It's not sin. Maybe change a few definitions. Maybe look at it from a different angle. We just deny that it's even there. Another way that we deal with our sin is we minimize it. We make it smaller than it really is. We we try to you know downplay it, downgrade it. It's really not that bad. And related to minimizing, sometimes we'll compare. And we'll look around. Because you know what? There's always a bigger jerk than you, right? There's always someone around who's mistreating their spouse a little worse than you or neglecting their kids a little more than you or a little un- more unethical than you are, right? There's always those guys. So we look around and, oh yeah, look at that idiot. I feel so much better about who I am by comparing my sin with someone else. Or we perhaps just ignore it. Maybe we're we're confronted with a a pattern in our life that keeps destroying us, and we just kind of ignore it. We say, well, I'm sure that's not what it is. I'm sure that's not what's going on. Maybe even if we're confronted, we'll choose to ignore it. Or perhaps, this is a big one, we excuse it. We try to explain the backstory. We think, if we could just explain, you know why I put a cop up there, right? How many people try to explain why they are speeding? We try to explain and give context for why, in this particular case, this action really is excusable. We often don't let other people off the hook that way, but we feel our backstory is compelling enough to do that. And then, of course, we often can shift our sin by blaming others, by saying, it's not my fault. Um, I do that because she you know, is mistreating me, or I, I, I said that because he is such an idiot, or I, I did this because they aren't pulling their weight, whatever. We shift our sin. What I love about this passage in First John, what I love about all the scripture, is that it enables us, because of the grace of God, it enables us to call sin what it is. Awful. Destructive. Hurtful. Completely missing the target of what God desires for us, what God desires for our community, what He desires for our family. We can acknowledge it as something real, and something that can be dealt with. First John sets up this stark contrast between those who are willing to walk in the light and acknowledge honestly their sin and those who claim to follow God who is light but refuse to let his light shine into their lives. And what really struck me is that the difference between these two groups of people, walking in the darkness, walking in the light, was not the sin itself. You're going to find impatient people who walk in the light And impatient people who walk in the darkness. You know what I'm saying? You're gonna find selfish people in the darkness and in the light. You're gonna find people who are petty. You yourself might struggle with pride. Some of us might even struggle with judging others. Or being self-righteous. We're gonna find sin in both groups. You're gonna find sinners in the darkness, and you're gonna find sinners in the light. And I think that's what we hear in 1 John very clearly. You can't deny that you have sin in your life, or else you make out God to be a liar yet you can come into the light and sin can be dealt with. It's not the presence or the absence of sin that separates those who walk in the dark from those who walk in the light because sinners are everywhere. There are sinners in the church. Did you know that? When you were coming here this morning, did you realize you were gathering together with a whole group of sinners? Did you know that? And sometimes we get discouraged by that, Right? And sometimes we even can recall some of the hurt we've experienced in the church because we maybe didn't realize how big of sinners we all were. There's sinners at your workplace. Did you know that? Hey, did you realize that that baby you laid in the crib last night was also a sinner? As well as your boss. As well as your spouse. Everywhere you look. There are sinners. And there is a sense in Scripture, because of the grace of God, that we're able to kind of, and I don't mean this glibly, because sin can be so destructive, is so destructive, but there's a sense in which the Scripture says, own up to it. Own up to it. We're sinners. What's the difference? The only difference between those who walk in the dark and those who walk in the light was their willingness to bring their sin into the light was their willingness to confess their sin as sin and let Jesus forgive their sin and more than forgive it, purify them and more than just that, begin to lead in their lives and bring about change in these patterns and change in the way they've been relating and change the way they've been thinking, the way they've been speaking and what they've been prioritizing. We bring our sin into the light and let Jesus shine His light on us and bring change into our lives. It's the confession of sin. Not the presence of sin that made the difference. You could say the night and day difference. First John 1.9 is incredibly encouraging. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. And will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And I know this can be scary, especially if we've worked hard our whole lives to hide our sin, minimize our sin, excuse our sin, deny it, whatever or there's been deep shame and a difficulty in acknowledging I have this struggle in my life, I understand how difficult it can be to really starkly, honestly acknowledge our sin. But what we find out in the Scripture and in community, that confessing our sin doesn't need to be this shaming, degrading experience. In fact, what we discover is that confessing sin is the door to true freedom. It's the door to experienced forgiveness. It's the pathway to new life in our relationships. It even brings peace and wholeness into our souls as we invite God to work in us. Well, very practically, I think there's three ways that we can confess. I want to rattle through them quick, and then we're going to practice it a little bit together before we go to our time of question and answer. The first way that we can practically confess is to practice personal confession of sin to God. It's got to start there, right? Where we come front to God and say, I screwed up. I messed up. I hurt that person. I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have done that. I struggle with this. To be honest with God, I mean, the reality is, you know, we stop ourselves and realize He knows already. But there's something powerful about actually confessing to God that we are sinners, that we need His grace. That we need His forgiveness. That there's an area in my life where I consistently am struggling. Where there's this pattern or this struggle or this mistake that I've made. And we practice personal confession to God. We do that regularly. We do that quick. And it's a sign of the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. When there's a shorter and shorter gap between the act of sin and the confession where we are open to the Holy Spirit's conviction in our lives and so that when we realize, oh my goodness, what have I done or what have I said, that we very quickly move to confess it to God as sin and receive his promise that he will forgive us our sins and purify us from all, unright- all unrighteousness. The second one is practicing personal confession to others. In another letter that we read in the New Testament, James 5.16 says, we confess our sins to each other and we pray for each other so that we can be healed. Confessing to each other is a very important practice that has been consistent down through Christian history. There's a few ways that this can happen. One is obviously where we confess our sin to the person that we've wronged, the person that we've hurt. And this is very crucial and important in in especially our daily relationships, our family relationships, our work relationships, the people we have ongoing you know, connection with. That when we've wronged them, and we realize that. Either they've come to us and told us this. Or we've realized as we've gone on, oh my goodness, I messed up. That we very quickly go and confess that to them. I, I was wrong. I shouldn't have said that. I, I, I snapped at you and I shouldn't have done that. And, and I'm, I'm sorry. I sinned. Please forgive me. And to even practice together, we did this with our kids for many years. To practice together, their response isn't, it's okay. The response is, I forgive you. It's not okay. Because we really do things that aren't okay. So we say, please forgive me. And when they say, it's okay, say, no, actually, I would like you to forgive me. And they say, I forgive you. This is important. The other way that we can practice a personal confession to others is to a trusted friend. A friend who can hold that confession confidentially, yes, but perhaps even more important, I mean confidential for sure, but also can hold that confession and together to hold it up before Jesus. And that, that friend who, who loves Jesus can pray with you and can assure you that you have been forgiven. And maybe talk to you about other steps you can take. Like maybe there is someone that needs to be apologized to. Maybe there is a step of restitution that you need to make. Being sensitive with that, recognizing that sometimes it may not be appropriate but with a trusted friend who can hold that confession before Jesus and assure you of your forgiveness. And then, of course, there also can be, in personal confession, others um, uh, sometimes within a group, maybe within an accountability group, three or four people who have covenanted together to to share life and to to be open about some of the struggles. Maybe it's a a group that has struggled with a particular addiction. Or maybe it's a, a friendship group or a neighborhood group or someone that, this is not the kind of group where people come and go, you know drag in a friend you just met. This is the kind of group where you meet and you're you're consistently willing to open up your hearts to each other, open up your soul to each other, be honest with each other, in light of the grace of God, confessing to one another, and then growing in grace for each other. (coughs) Excuse me. And then I think there's one more, and that is where we practice community confession. Acknowledging together, confessing our sin together as a community. This is both confessing our sin sort of individually as a community, but also that sense of corporately we confess our sin. Now this has been really true, if you read the Old Testament, New Testament, you see the practice in Christian history. It's true that there's been times where people of God have had to stand up and say, we confess our sin, particularly for something that we've done. (coughs) My throat's not going to hold in very well. Um, But also there's been times in history where the church has had to stand up and ask for forgiveness and confess their sin because of something in particular. I think of, of of the way the church has had to confess their sin uh, because of the practice of residential schools and all the harm that it did. Think of the church um, Christian brothers and sisters rising to confess their sin in in South Africa and for the way they per- perpetuated systemic injustice in, in that in that nation. Think of uh, our friends in the south who've had to confess as the church the ways that they, they, they enslaved uh, peoples from africa and and the, the the incredible devastation that has flown out from that, from that sin. And so it's appropriate that our communities would confess at times for a particular sin, a particular omission. But there's also a practice uh, in other churches that are maybe follow a more liturgical tradition where there's community confession on a more regular basis, where we just acknowledge when we come together, we need to confess and we need to receive the assurance of our forgiveness in Christ. And so today, as a way of kind of closing this part of the message, I want to invite us to, to stand together and we're going to pray a prayer of confession as a community. It's actually found in our hymnal, the blue hymnal, number 908. So you could look at that. We also have it printed on the insert in your bulletin and we also will have it on the screen. But I'd like you to, I'd like to invite you to stand up and we're going to pray this prayer of confession together. Please stand. I confess that I need, and I can't get into. There we are. All right, let's read this together. We confess to you, Lord, what we are. We are not the people we like others to think we are. We are afraid to admit, even to ourselves, what lies in the depths of our souls. But we do not want to hide our true selves from you. We believe that you know us as we are, and yet you love us. Help us not to shrink from self-knowledge. Teach us to respect ourselves for your sake. Give us the courage to put our trust in your guiding and power. We confess to you, Lord, the unrest of the world, to which we contribute and in which we share. Forgive our reliance on weapons of terror, our discrimination against people of different races, and our preoccupation with material standards. And forgive us Christians for being so unsure of our good news and so unready to tell it raise us out of the paralysis of guilt into the freedom and energy of forgiven people. And for those who through long habit find forgiveness hard to accept, we ask you to break their bondage and set them free. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. You may be seated. The scripture is very clear. We will sin even as we walk in the light. And the goal the Holy Spirit has for us is that we be transformed more and more into the image of Jesus Christ. But sin, sin is a reality. And when we sin, we confess it, we acknowledge it, we invite the Holy Spirit to work in our lives, and we keep following Jesus in the light. Listen to the last few verses, or the first few verses of chapter 2. We read them at the start. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. That is the goal. We don't want to keep doing things that destroy relationships and destroy our souls and inhibit our relationship with God. But, and here's the encouragement here at Straight, if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for the gift of your forgiveness, for the love that you show to us, and for the fact that we can be truly honest about our sin. In light of your grace, we can be fully honest and receive forgiveness and purification and the power to keep walking in the light and letting you work in our lives. And I pray that we as a community would be a confessing community, open and honest about who we are, and even more excited about the grace that you are pouring pouring into our lives. We just ask that you would fill us now, and even as now we we share in question and answer time, that um, you would just enable us to hear one another as we hear you. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, I put out the word uh, to a few of you, and I put out the word on Facebook that that we were going to spend a little bit of time uh, doing some Q&A this morning. And so, Olin has a microphone. I know that there's been a lot of questions asked in the last while in your groups, and some of the questions you've been able to grapple with, and some of them you are wishing you could have, you know, raise in a different context. We don't have a tremendous amount of time today. We won't be able to maybe answer all the questions. And let me just give the caveat as I throw this out there. You do understand that I don't have all the answers, right? We all get that, right? So this morning, as you throw out questions, I'm going to do my best, okay? I'm going to answer you as honestly as I can, and part of that honesty may be, I forgot. I don't I have no idea. And so let, bear with me. Let's just be honest this morning as we share our questions. But uh, I'd love to just open it up if there are some particular questions that we can grapple with. And I, I am certain, especially if it's a question that's been burning in your heart for a while, I will answer it in a way that is completely unsatisfactory to you. Which means, I hope, for all of us that we'll challenge ourselves and each other to go deeper. Like, read more, search more. Let this be maybe a starting place for for the answer to some of your questions, but let's let's grapple through some of them together. Uh, what we're going to do, Olin is going to, uh, you can put up your hand if you've got questions already. Um, what we're going to do for the recording, I'm saying this for those who are listening to the podcast, that um, Jack's actually going to take the second service questions and tack them right on the back of this one. So when you look at when you, the downloadable uh, podcast that will be available, we'll have uh, my message, first service question time, second service question time, all in one podcast, just so that everyone can experience all the beautiful questions that you'll be asking. Uh, so that's, that's for, for the recording. So, Any questions this morning that have come up in your connect groups or come up in your personal reading of the New Testament that you'd like to raise this morning? Put up your hand. Owen's going to come to you. And you can use the microphone so that your question is on the recording. Go ahead.
1: Okay. In our group, um, we wondered about the god hardening hearts i think that was in john twelve twenty three to 42 blinding their eyes yeah. what what how does that work like we were okay he's he's he doesn't want he wants everybody to come to him right yeah. so then we were wondering okay if he hardens certain hearts then he knows <laughs> i don't know those people aren't going to come to him right? right so where's the free will the whatever or i don't know nice anyway
0: nice opening question so what we see in scripture not only that in john like you see judas and stuff but also in romans it talks about the hardening of pharaoh's heart and so you see this pattern if you look back in the story you do see um kind of pharaoh and how that story all rolled out of course this is a question that have has vexed theologians and christians alike for a long time so let me give you a completely inadequate response Um, One of the things you note in the hardening of whether it's, uh, you know, Jesus uh, quoting that Isaiah 6 passage, which he does in a lot of the Gospels, saying, you know, I I come to you sharing parables so that your eyes could see but not, you know, understand and hear but not understand so that you wouldn't turn and be forgiven. It's just like, what in the world is Jesus doing here? You see the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. You see Judas. What we see in the pattern in Scripture is, and and I think it is more nuanced than simply God saying, because it's very clear that God wants people to follow him, wants people to come to him. But what we see is when there's a resistance to God for a sustained period of time, there seems to be, like in Pharaoh's case, he's a great example, when you read back in the Exodus story, you see that Pharaoh hardens his own heart against the plight of the Israelites, against what God is challenging him to do, hardens his heart, hardens his heart, hardens his heart. And then at a certain point in the text, God begins to harden his heart. And God begins to harden his heart. And it's like God is saying, you've hardened your heart, you've hardened your heart, now I'm really going to take you to the end. And when the judgment falls, it'll be, you'll, you'll be worthy of it, as it were. And what we see a pattern in Scripture is that God consistently calls people to follow him, he honors their free will, but there's a dynamic there, that when people have looked at the grace of God, or they've looked at what God is doing, and they have absolutely 100% resisted it, that there seems to come a point at which God says, okay, if you really want to go that way, I'll help you do it. And that's troubling maybe to some of us, but when we, when we realize that God really does understand where this person's at and where their heart is at, that there is a dynamic at place where God says, I realize this person has come to the point where they are so resistant to my will. Look at the, look at the, the Pharisees and how resistant they were. They would look at a miracle that Jesus performed. Healing blind eyes. Or casting out a demon. They'd look at so evidently the grace of God being poured and bringing freedom in someone's life, and they would look at it and say, that's clearly a work of the devil. The hearts were so hard. And it was at that moment Jesus said, you know, you can blaspheme against the Son all you like, sort of, but you blaspheme against the Holy Spirit and you're toast. And it's recognizing that there's a certain point where the resistance comes where God says, fine, you want it that way? You know, C.S. Lewis puts it this way. He says, either we're all going to say, thy will be done to God, or God will turn around to us and say, thy will be done. And we see this pattern in Scripture that as people have resisted, whether it's Pharaoh, whether it's Judas, who had all the opportunity in the world to respond to Jesus. And, of course, it's, it's properly interpreted as this was God's plan, which is a way of saying this is not a surprise to God. God is working this thing out. But it still was Judas actively choosing to reject the incarnated Son of God, who saw everything he could have possibly seen and yet resisted what God was doing through Jesus, even to the point of betraying him, then guess what? You're toast. And that can sound difficult, but the reality is, at a certain point, God lets us go our way. I think it's an expression of our free will, and God just helps us move that final distance. Other questions? By the way, there's been more ink spilled than that one than you could possibly imagine. So, if you really are wanting to dig that one further, there's books you can read. Yeah. Other questions? Put up your hand, Bernie, over here.
1: Um, the Bible talks about certain numbers, and yeah. it's, it seems like it there has is a meaning behind it. Uh, do, can you explain that?
0: Thank you. In particular, Revelation, right, Bernie? The- yep. Yeah, all through the Bible there are numbers, Old Testament lots, lots in Revelation, Um, even in in the Gospel of John, actually, there's some numbers that, and, and, and the question is, are those numbers significant? Now, yes, they are. I think what we have to do, the work we have to do, is try to understand how are those numbers significant within the Jewish worldview and within the context of the whole of Scripture. Because it's very easy for us to apply some mathematical genius from our end to a number that wouldn't have been consistent with a Jewish worldview or the Christian worldview or the prophetic thing that was going on. And so we explored a lot of that in the Revelation series we did last year, which can I just say as a side note, if you ran across stuff this week in Revelation that was like,
2: what is
0: I did preach through it all last year and it's all online so you can go and listen to it there uh, but the numbers they are they are uh, symbolic and they often really uh they have a very deep significance but it's connected to um often things like for example in revelation there's a lot of numbers that suggest perfection or suggest what god is up to or refer to god's people the number 12 often in whether it's 12 disciples whether it's and then the twelve apostles and, and 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 the you know twelve sons and tribes they, they all are they're all hinting hinting out or pointing at the perfect complete people of God for example um, the number three the number seven and then often the number ten or then and then you get all the multiplications of so twelve times ten or twelve times twelve or you know seven times four and in Revelation four often refers to the whole earth and so you have these symbolic numbers that are all part. And here's the significant, I think, is that the numbers, they often, what they do is they just deepen and underpin what's already being said. So it's not like, and this is really important, it's not like you read it over and you will never ever touch on what exactly is going on in this book unless you have this deep esoteric knowledge of math. You know, because are, aren't we thankful for that? Um, but what it does do when you get into the Jewish worldview and what's going on in the prophets is it deepens, yes, the, the depth of the book, and the, the incredible mind of God, but it just deepens what is often being said very straight out on the surface as well. And so, uh, yes, the numbers are significant, but I think we need to be careful that we don't ascribe to them values that aren't within the Jewish uh, worldview at all. Yeah. Thanks, Bernie. Other questions? No question too small, or apparently no question too big. Jody. Okay, oh, Jody, and then and then if there's something wrong.
1: There's a lot of interaction um, with Jesus healing people that had demons. And the one case was in um, Mark. And the lady, it's around Tyre. Do you know where I'm talking about? Yep. Chapter 7. A woman whose little daughter was possessed by an impure spirit came and fell at his feet. So why would
0: a little kid have a demon? (laughs) Great question, Jody. Thank you. So, I'll back up and then I'll answer it. So, one of the things that's very significant in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you won't see it in John, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, is that when Jesus came on the scene, there was this eruption of reaction, spiritual reaction, you'd say, um, uh, from the demonic or the evil forces of this world. And so, you had this power encounter between Jesus, who came on the scene and demons were just like flying left, right, and center. Again, I want to emphasize, you read the Gospel of John and look for that, and you don't see it. Different angle. But in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, there's this power encounter where the kingdom of God is on the scene, the new king is being installed, and he is routing the enemy. And so everywhere he went, demons. And as we know, especially in Mark, um, the demons knew who he was and would acknowledge who he was, and he would shut them up because he didn't feel like having them be the primary testimony to who he was. you know, Credibility of the witness, you know what I'm saying? But they knew who they were encountering, and he would, he would cast them out and bring freedom to people's lives. What we acknowledge is that, I mean, at a broader level, is that we are in a world that there is a war going on, and Jesus, when he showed up in the scene, and we see this, we see this today, we see this in particular when the gospel is going into places where it hasn't been or it hasn't been for a while. There's often a power encounter, a spiritual power encounter that can take uh, place on a number of different levels, but it sure is taking place in, in Jesus. One of the things that we don't know the situation for the Syrophoenician woman, but there's other children as well, like the little boy is being like, cast into the fire or throws himself into the fire trying to destroy him, where these spiritual forces seem to have taken control over a child's life or a person's life. Um, Let me say one thing about that. One thing we see in Scripture is that, and it's important, I think, to acknowledge, is that while a demon or an evil spirit can cause sickness, that is not always the cause of sickness. That's really important to point out because sometimes, whether we're talking about mental illness, whether we're talking about physical disability or struggle, in uh, today's world, you can get people who think it's got to be one or the other and and so they 'll begin to diagnose, as it were, without understanding that you know it might be or it might not be we need to pray for the discernment of the Holy Spirit to know what 's going on here in the case of uh, these people 's lives, it seems like to us that Jesus was encountering people that had come under the power of the evil one, and we don 't know how, whether it was through idolatrous worship, some of the practices that went on in that day, and, and again, the woman that come to him, that in the case you 're talking about um, we don't know what her kind of spiritual practice background would have been. We don't know if, if if the practices she was involved in might have actually implicated her child. It could have. We know that that's true in other places, uh, or that's true in some uh, cultures and some religions where there's a, essentially an inviting of the spirits to take control or acknowledgement of them. And so in her case, we don't know what the background was. What we do know is, and this is the most important thing to hold on to, we don't know why the evil one was granted control or had control in that child's life or in that family or maybe when we look around us but what we do know is that when jesus is on the scene there's no contest that's what we do know we know that when jesus is on the scene he confronts evil and he deals with it so it's not about trying to figure out like why does god like is he okay with that it's like no he's not okay with it he shows up in the scene and he casts it out he brings healing he confronts the powers of evil and he gets rid of them to bring wholeness and healing and forgiveness and the good news to these people's lives. So however it came to be, we know what the response is. Reject the evil in Jesus' name and declare his kingship and his lordship in whatever situation that is. Thanks, Jody. Other questions? Your group had a lot of questions. Yeah,
1: yeah our group did. Okay, on uh, page 356, First Peter, and it was probably around verse 19, maybe somewhere near. there. Anyway, after being made alive, Jesus, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. What does this refer to or what is that?
0: (laughs) Thanks. I know I should have come to the group privately so I wouldn't have to do this in front of everybody. (laughs) So it's a really hard passage to understand. I just want to acknowledge that after that. Not very easy. there has been a number of traditions. This idea that when Jesus died in that period of time between his death and the cross and his resurrection, he went into hell. That's why some uh, of the Apostles' creeds there's variation, right? You have, we have a, a, a the Apostles' Creed, which Christians have quoted for many, many centuries. Some of them will say he descended into hell. Others will say he descended to the place of the dead or to the dead. And there's a bit of debate on, like, what did Jesus do during that time? And I grew up in the world of Carmen, where there was this big, you know, depicting this big battle where Jesus went down and he like beat Satan up and grabbed the keys and unlocked the doors and it was amazing. But I'm not sure that's exactly what happened. What it suggests here and what Peter seems to be suggesting, he's casting a big picture of the power that that Jesus has affected through his death that he was able to go and bring good news to everywhere that it could be heard. And in this case, it seems to suggest, and this is I'm just going to represent what uh, I think different Christians have have said on this. One is that he went to those who had faith in God but didn't know, you know, sort of like those who were, uh, at Jesus' death, he went and unlocked those who were, thanks Dana, those who were like waiting and brought them into the full promise. So those who had faith, like Abraham, as it were. Others have suggested that he went and there were those who had never had an opportunity to hear the gospel and he went and he showed them who he was and people have, uh, have objected to that. Others have just said, look, he affected the freedom of everyone who was imprisoned by death by his death and resurrection. So it's a bit confusing. Like there's a whole, you know, keep going in that. It's going to say women are saved through childbearing too. I mean, there's a bunch of stuff in this passage that's like, what is going on? And what is he trying to say to us? The message of First Peter is to suffer well when you're being hurt. By You know, be a faithful Christian Keep suffering the way Jesus called you to suffer and believe that he will carry you through. His, his death, his resurrection is powerful. And in this passage, he seems to be just giving them this, this encouragement that no matter what they're experiencing, he's going to bring them through. If he can do that to these guys imprisoned long ago, he'll do it to you now. That seems to be the connection. So another totally inadequate response. Hands up if you have more questions. We've got a few more minutes we can take. Anyone? Jerry.
1: I'm just looking at uh, Romans 1. Uh, there's a caption here, God's wrath against mankind. And I'm looking at uh, verse. Uh, Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchange the truth of God for a lie, and so on. I wonder if you could just elaborate a bit on that.
0: Sure, thanks. So in Romans chapter 1, you know, Jerry, it's actually very similar to the earlier question about the hardening of the heart. Like it's a very, it's, it's, this response is very similar. In that, what we see here is that God says, at a certain point, if they are going to resist the truth, if they're going to resist who I am, if they're not going to acknowledge it, at a certain point, God says, I will let you go your way. And you, can, you, can, you can do it. You have the freedom to do it. Uh, but it will lead to destruction. And that is not God's desire. His desire is that people would experience freedom and fullness and wholeness and become fully human. But humans, when they reject who God is, and they reject who they are as created in the image of God, when we reject that, we begin to treat one another in ways that degrade one another. We begin to treat one another as less than human. And we know that's true all the way through Scripture. When people stop worshipping the true God, then they stop treating the images of God properly. And what we see in Romans 1 is very similar across the board, where God says, at a certain point, He gives them over. At a certain point, He says, okay, you can go. And that's a dynamic we need to be really careful with. It's not like, because we can all... Uh, We all know people, and we ourselves can tell a story where we were at a place in our lives where we were so far gone, and yet God, in his grace, brought us to himself, right? And so it's not like we look at a scripture like this, or the other ones we looked at and say, oh, that person over there, like, there's not a chance for them. That is not us. That is not our call. What we acknowledge is that God truly, he is the hound of heaven, as the old poem said, right? He truly goes after us. He truly finds us in the lowest of the low places and he restores us back. That is the, 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 the grace of God, who will never leave us or forsake us. But what we see in Scripture is that there seems to be a point where God says you can go your way. Maybe, and this is a debate, maybe they still will experience the, the degradation and the dehumanization and the struggle of that to the point where they will begin to turn and begin to you know invite God into their lives. That obviously can happen. There's just way too many testimonies of people who experience the transformation of Jesus at a, from a very very dark place. But so you know God doesn't doesn't give up. Um, I was sharing with someone else the other day. What I know is this: when it comes to the hardening of hearts, or when it comes to the grace of God, when it comes to the will of free will of humans. What I do know is this: you have got to hold on to what is really true. God is more gracious than I am. He's more merciful than you will ever be. You do know that, right? He's more knowledgeable. He's more understanding. He is more long-suffering. Can we just say that? God is more patient than I am? Yes, He is. And so when we think of people's lives, or we think of situations, what we have to recognize is at the point at which I would have written someone off, Jesus keeps coming back, keeps leaning in, keeps calling out, keeps chasing down. His grace and His long-suffering and His willingness to go to the cross for people is so far beyond ours. And so there's a certain point for me in some of these discussions, and I don't mean that, like don't, I'm not saying that like shut down the discussion, but at a certain point for me, if I remember what's really true, that God is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all, you know what we read in 1 John, when I realize that, I remember, oh right, it's tempting at certain points in these conversations to begin to attribute to God characteristics that are darkness, evil. Well, God must not care. Or God must just, you know, write people off. Or God must just kind of bring down the hammer. Or God must just whatever. And to forget, no, no, this God that we worship, the God that we follow, the God that some of us are just coming to know, is so good, is so gracious, is so merciful, is so loving, that there will come a day that if you could, if you could, if you could, stand beside the throne, as it were, when people line up to receive judgment from Jesus, you would stand there for only a few minutes and then you'd fall on your face before Jesus and worship him as being incredibly merciful, incredibly right, incredibly loving, incredibly just. We would be so in awe of how amazing he is when we could just, if we could just see him do it. And when I remember that, I have some peace because I know that at the end of the day, it really will all be well. He really will be enthroned over all. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that he is Lord because he is. Thanks for your great questions. Uh, We'll wrap that up for now. Have our coffee time. And hey, if you want to stay for round two, you're welcome to. Again, these are questions that you may have asked at your Connect group. You may have been asking as you read through the New Testament this, this fall. There are no dumb questions. Some of you are brand new to Scripture, and this is the first time you've ever read through the New Testament. Others of you have been through it a lot, um, and there may be questions you want to ask, so uh, go ahead and throw them out. Hands up. Do you want to say that in the microphone, Stanley? Do you have a question related to that? Okay. So Cameron, right up front. Go ahead and ask your question, Stanley. Um, it is sinned to use Jesus to sin,
1: knowing for well that you can take it back to then get your sins forgiven by using Jesus just for yourself,
0: you know. Thank you, Stanley. Yes, I think I think what I heard you say is: is it a sin to use Jesus as an excuse to sin, knowing that eh, I'll just do this and then I'll just go back to him later and get forgiveness? I think that's abusing God's grace, absolutely. And in in um, the letter to the Romans. That's one of the things Paul kind of tried to counter. People were saying, well, if God's grace is even greater, depending on the sin, then maybe we should sin more so that God's grace can be greater. We all know where that one was going. And uh, and he said, no, give me a break. You're, you died to sin. This is not part of you anymore. Your life was changed. And to use that kind of excuse would suggest that you're not getting what's going on here. You don't understand the devastation of sin. And you're obviously not understanding... How, the change that God has brought in us by giving us his Holy Spirit, we no longer can walk that way. That should no longer be part of our lives. So, yes, I'd say it's a sin. What well, we do recognize, though, Stanley, and we all recognize that sometimes there are real struggles, addictions. Um, there, And I'm not saying that to excuse sin, but to recognize that Jesus is at work in our lives. And we don't want to look at each other and say, well, you know, how come they're keep coming back to ask for forgiveness. Jesus himself said to his disciples when asked, how many times should I forgive that person that keeps coming back to me and asking for forgiveness, right? Because we get pretty tired after the fourth or fifth time. So Peter said, should I forgive him seven times, thinking I'm being super generous here. And Jesus said, no, forgive him like 70 times, 7 times, or 77 times, depending on the translation. In other words, we've got to be gracious with each other, even when there seems to be like, my goodness, are we, are we talking about this again? Um, we need to be gracious with each other, but we also need to challenge at times appropriately and in right relationship, people that seem to be glibly saying, oh, you know, God will just forgive me. It doesn't really matter. No, it matters. Jesus died for that. It matters. Thank you, Stanley. Other questions that you might want to raise?
3: So my thoughts around, uh, you know, sin, you know, I, I think of trauma, which causes behaviors, which mm-hmm. leads to, you know, unhealthy behaviors, right? Yes. And relieving those kinds of, addressing those behaviors, addressing those things that we might be labeling as sin, um, that um, that comes through a lot of um, awareness. And when I think of the concept of sin, forgiveness, move on, sin, forgiveness, move on, the cycle that kind of happens, I think that often uh, there's a lack of awareness of what's kind of going around that behavior. (laughs) Um, And and finding that sometimes we're getting trapped in the concept of that um, if I have a behavior that I'm trying to address, that I just need to simply ask for forgiveness and then try to move on, which I attach the concept of willpower in that, that I'm trying to will myself again, which is not a concept that I think is something that Jesus is really around is really addressing that behavior through being aware of what the behavior is and, and why the behavior is there in the first place. So how does that to you kind of come into the whole concept of forgiveness is, is actually trying to understand why is it that I've come to have some of these behaviors, not necessarily, I'm just trying to get rid of these behaviors or addiction or whatever it is.
0: Thank you for that, Bryce. That is super. And, and recognizing that, yeah, especially with patterns, but, you know, getting under that. I think that's part of what it means to come into the light. And, like, we do confess our sin, but what it isn't is just, like, let's just ignore everything of what might be causing this problem. And addiction's a great example, because often uh, people who have struggled with addiction acknowledge that it's coming from something deeper. It's, it's coming from a deep wound, a deep hurt. It doesn't mean that the action itself isn't sin or isn't causing massive destruction, but is recognizing that until we deal with the healing that's needed, the, the deeper level of wounds that have occurred in a person's life, it's going to be very difficult to actually come and live in true freedom. And I, I think what we acknowledge is true in Scripture is that coming into the light, as it were, is being willing to let the Holy Spirit deal with some of those deep things. Sometimes we have to do that through counseling, obviously. Sometimes you do that in, in trusted community. Sometimes it just takes up time as we process some of those things. And, but we, we allow Jesus to get in deep and actually work at the, the very depth of, of who we are. And when we don't acknowledge that, and sometimes there's been uh, practices in Christian community that have sort of end up kind of like, How don't we just, haven't we already dealt with that sin? Why are we dealing with this again? Ignoring the fact that perhaps there's a deeper work of healing that Jesus needs to do. And, uh, and you know I, I think you guys know this, acknowledging that for a lot of people who are, who are in deep cycles of trauma, um, being able to be honest about their struggle in a place where they are receiving the grace, it might be the very way they're able to then open up and go more deeply into the healing that Jesus wants for them. Thanks, Bryce.
2: Question, Olin had a question, Cameron. Okay, I guess the question would be, <clears throat> in reading through the New Testament, they, I came to a spot where it had a section on how certain certain things are made for uh, set apart use and certain things are, are destined for uh, common use or destruction. Okay. Yep. And that was kind of, uh, kind of harsh and kind of, kind of took me back at first.
0: Okay. So we're talking about Romans, right? Romans 9, 10, 11. So there's a, there's a big argument going on in Romans. It's a massive argument and the whole, it's all rooted in the question of basically, has God just written off His chosen people and moved on? It's kind of the question. And He's challenging that and saying, no, God's up to something great here. And it seemed like the turning away of Israel, which wasn't total, of course lots of Jewish people obviously followed Jesus, but this turning away that Paul, you can see it experienced in Acts, and in Romans he's dealing with it, was not a sign that God had forgotten them, but rather it was the way in which Gentiles, non-Jewish people, were coming into, into faith. And then what, what he says is, is that eventually, then we will be part of bringing them in. And there's a kind of a relationship there, a witness. And in that argument in particular, what he's arguing against is the um, assumption, you could say, people saying, well, how can God do that kind of thing? Like, what's up with God? Uh, who gives him the right? You know, and, and Paul's kind of going, uh, he has the right to do whatever he pleases. What we see him do, though, is act consistently faithful to his people and to the whole world so that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved, right? Romans 10. And so what we see is the consistent faithfulness of God. There's a logic to this. And the logic, um guy that I did my master's thesis on, he had an amazing chapter in one of his books called The Logic of Election. I don't normally bring that one out. But um, what he argued is that there's a logic to it because God chose a people through whom the Messiah would come to be a blessing to the nations. And that is through this people that Jesus came. But then what do you happen in John? You know, he came to those who were his own and they didn't recognize him. They wouldn't receive him. And, And what he says is there's a logic here in that God shows up through the people of Israel and then it's now going to be, and this is the argument in Romans, that it's now going to be through Others, that they themselves come to know the grace and goodness of God. Obviously, there's way more to that argument than that. But in the simplest terms, Paul's saying, we don't have any right to question God. However, God is good. God pursues people. God never relents. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? End of Romans 8, right? Nothing. Man, he will go to any lengths to see people come to know him. So we can trust him. Now,
3: If, uh, this is probably just a simple question, but if we have died to sin, as the Bible says, why do we keep on sinning? Like, uh, just. Yeah. Could you please just elaborate on that?
2: Yeah, simple
0: question, she says. (laughs) Thank you, Val. I think that what we see in Scripture is that there's a recognition that new creation has come into our lives, right? See that all over the place. So, with the Romans, in Romans, Paul says, you know, you died to sin, how can you live in it any longer? Or uh, 2 Corinthians 5, right? Anyone's in Christ, they're a new creation. The old is gone, new has come. And when he appeals, all through his letters, when Paul appeals, like he writes to churches, usually because someone is messing up, most of the letters we receive are into a community that was going off the tracks or there was something wrong. You don't get very many letters where there wasn't a reason why Paul was writing to them. And when Paul would try to get the people to kind of get their head straight when it came in terms of ethics and morals, his appeal to them was always this. His appeal to them was, why would you live the way you used to live? You're not that way anymore. Like, that's not who you are anymore. That was his basic appeal to them. He'd say, remember your baptism. When you were baptized, you died. That guy's dead. And he'd make them look back to the baptism, which, can I just say, side point, that's why every Christian should be able to look back to their baptism it's a challenge for those of us who may not yet be baptized and yet are followers of jesus but we should all be able to look back to our baptism and say i died that day i no longer live the way i used to live but what there's an honest acknowledgement in scripture we heard that in first john that though we have become new creations there is a process in place it's like the holy spirit has brought us in christ into this new relationship with the father and we are perfectly clothed, you know, in white, purified in Jesus. And now the Holy Spirit's job, which is a pretty big job, is to now get our reality to ca- our, our sort of our, our us to catch up with our reality in Christ, which is part of walking in the light. Saying, "I want to walk in the light as He is in the light. God is light. I want His light to shine into my life. And as I do that, I, I am being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ." Day by day, as the Spirit works in me, and He's reshaping me to look more and more like Jesus, which is a process of dealing with our sin, dealing with our patterns, healing our wounds, doing whatever. But there's a tension there between the full, you know, what we will be and who we are. But Jesus covers that in His, you know, in His grace and in His goodness. And so there's, there's a lot of tension here. It's not that different than what we would describe. The kingdom of God has come in Jesus, and yet it's not fully come. We still see wars, we still see difficulty, we still see tragedy. And so we acknowledge that there's like this tension between the kingdom of God is present and yet it's not fully present. It's not all here. It's not, sin has not completely been dealt with yet, even though we acknowledge that what Jesus did on the cross has dealt with it. There's that in between period. And in our, in our own lives, we are in this, you know, the Holy Spirit is in this business of helping us look more like the family resemblance of the family we've been adopted into. And it's a beautiful image. Um, it's, I've used this image before. It's the image of the kid's been adopted to the table. And he is a member of the family. He's got the, he's got the name. He's a loved member of the family. There's nothing that can happen to change that. But now this kid has to go through a process of beginning to learn what it is that, what family he's now part of. And it might mean he's got some retraining to do in the area of table manners. And it might mean that the way he dresses might gradually change. And we see this transformation take place as this child becomes more and more, looks more and more like he's part of this family. But it doesn't change the fact that he is part of the family. And Jesus is in this process of transforming us to look more and more like the children of God that we are. So there's tension there, but it's beautiful. It's great. Other questions? Mimi
1: on behalf of my connect group. Excellent. I think you know what's coming. I don't know. So about you. Hebrews
2: <laughs> Oh yes, now yeah. you.
1: <laughs> it's on page 298 in the Thanks. In the book. The verse it is impossible for those who have once been enlighten, enlightened, <coughs> who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the holy spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age and who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance. Great, Thanks. wondering if you can shed some light on that I doubt it great <clears throat>
0: I'm just looking it's in Hebrews, maybe uh, the start of chapter six all right it's impossible. those have been enlightened. basically, if you got it, then you turn your toast. I mean that 's what it sounds like at least, right So obviously, there is debate on this passage, right? There would be those who would say, "I know it says that, but no it, there can't, it can't be that the, the, the gate slams down and they're toast. And then there's others who say, well, that's what it says, so that must, you know, okay. So, there's a struggle and it usually has to do with where people land on the Calvinism spectrum. I hate to use that word, but there you go. And so where people kind of think how that all perseverance of the saints or one saved all saved. So like, there's lots of debate on this, okay? Let me tell you what I think. If you disagree with me, I plead the grace of Jesus and just, you know. Uh, Anyway, so if you put it in the context of the book of Hebrews, the letter of Hebrews, which I preached on a couple weeks ago, do you remember what the theme of the book of Hebrews is? Anyone? Yeah, yeah, say it, go and come on. Right, Jesus is better, so don't go back, right? And the whole theme of Hebrews is Jesus is better, don't go back. And it, he goes through it line by line. He talks about angels. He talks about Moses. He talks about Melchizedek. He talks about priests and tabernacles and sacrifices and blah, blah, blah. It goes on and on and on. And it's all to establish how great Jesus is to a community that because of persecution and because of other teachers are being tempted to return to their former practice. And in this case, it could be, you know, depending on the community, it could be other things. In this case, it would seem to be a group of, of Jewish Christians I mean, tempted to return to their older way of practicing worship, kind of pre-Jesus. And the whole message of Hebrews is, you can't do that. Like, don't do that. And so all through Hebrews, you hear these warnings. Um, you know, hold firmly to your face. Don't turn back. Um, you know, uh, don't harden your hearts. And it's punctuated all through this letter in really strong language that you cannot turn back, don't turn back, don't turn back. And, and uh, this is probably one of the strongest ones in Hebrews. But if you do put it in context to all the other challenges, it's still in the same line. It's saying, Jesus is better, don't go back. If you go back to the lesser, you've got nothing. Like he's outstripped everything. So what would you be doing that for? And in this particular one, I don't think you can get much stronger than what he says here. But he basically says, if you turn back, you're toast. I mean, that's what he says. If you turn back, you're toast. Impossible, as it says. Impossible for them to be brought back to repentance and, and on, on and on. And so there's just, I, I don't think there's a stronger warning. And I believe that the letter uh, to the Hebrews and the writer, he wants them to feel this. Like, you cannot turn back. And, and, you know, he, he's like tearing his hair out, like, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. And he's, he's giving, he's putting all the emotional weight behind that, all the spiritual weight behind that to get them to understand that, man, if you do that, you are, you are in deep, deep trouble. I don't believe he was trying to settle an argument about once saved, always saved. But I mean that. I, I'm not gliding over that. I don't believe here he was trying to settle for once and for all the debate between Calvin and Arminius, right? He's not trying to do that. What he's looking, he's looking a community in the eyes who's on the verge of saying, we don't want to follow Jesus anymore. We want to go back to what's safe. We want to go back to what we know. And he's looking them right in the eyes and he's saying, if you do that, you will, you will fall into a chasm that there's no escape out of. And he's putting it as strongly as he possibly can. And uh, I think in my experience, and what I've seen when people have gone far down the road, and have really, I mean, I used in that same message the example of Charles Templeton, but there's other examples of people that have gone far down the road and then have gone back to a place of complete devout atheism, for example, or another religion, that what you do see is that people, it is often hard for them to ever come back. Just experientially, you see that. Do I think it's impossible? Honestly, I don't even know. Um, I think it's impossible if they don't then have another repentance of some kind. But I don't want to play fast and loose with this scripture. With this scripture, what I think the letter, the writer of Hebrews wants people to hear, is he he wants their eyes to be kind of big right now. Like, I think that's what he wants. I really do. I think he, he wants this community to kind of, they're like sitting up in their benches and going, oh my goodness, like we are on dangerous ground if we turn back. And that's, that's what I think he's trying to do here. And so I don't, again, there's other scriptures that say, you know, no, no one shall pluck them out of my hand and nothing shall separate us from the love of Christ. I think that's all very true, obviously. And uh, I, you know, I don't think it's Jesus saying, you know, Jesus doesn't give up on us. But I do think that there's times perhaps where people say, you know, stiff arm to God and, and he says, okay. And is there a chance they'll repent after that? It's, It's probably pretty slim. Can I say that? Other questions? Brad.
4: So along those lines, uh, that made me think of another scripture where Jesus says, you can blaspheme me and there's forgiveness, but if yeah. you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, there's no, for, there's no forgiveness. So That's great. I, that one's always been kind of yeah. confusing for me. So. Yeah, and
0: troubling for a lot of people. So the question around sort of blaspheming the Holy Spirit, so, <laughs> you know. Talk about Jesus however you like, but don't you mistalk the Holy Spirit, right? The context of that is really important. So in the context, um, Jesus is performing these amazing miracles. Everywhere he went, people were being healed. Blind eyes were seen for the first time. Lame people were walking. People who couldn't speak were speaking. Um, demons were like flying left, right, and center as he walked through these crowds, right? So it was an incredible display of God's power flowing through Jesus. It was so evident that the kingdom of God was doing something spectacular. And the results, the fruit of that, was like lives healed, people transformed, people leaping and dancing, who've been an invalid their whole life. I mean, just incredible transformation. And the religious leadership looked at that which was so clearly a work of God, looked it straight in the eyes and said, that's a work of Satan. And it's at that moment that Jesus said, well, he said, how can, house, you know, how can a house divided against itself still stand? And he does the whole strong man thing, and it's the image of Jesus plundering the house. I love it. Jesus the burglar. Put that in your category. Jesus is like plundering the house, and he's setting captives free, who've been chained in the house of, of, of the evil one. But then he says to them, look, anyone who blasphemes the Son, there's forgiveness. But if you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, you're out of luck. There's no forgiveness for that. It's very similar to what Mimi said in the sense of this. I think that what we recognize, okay, first of all, is that Jesus is given a very strong warning. He's also acknowledging that anyone, in particular this, this religious establishment, the, the, these, you know, Scribes and Pharisees, teachers of the law in the time of Jesus, some of whom did believe in Jesus later, so it's not carte blanche everybody, but it's a recognition that if when they will see, if they see a full vivid display of God's grace and power and still call it evil, there's no chance, like, what else could possibly bring them to repentance? What else could pro- possibly convince them that God is at work in this man? Like, nothing. Like, they're beyond help. They have willfully willfully blinded themselves. And it seems like what what Jesus is saying is when you've gone to that point, there's no forgiveness. I don't think, and again, not trying to play fast and loose, I don't think Jesus is saying to them, if you repented and realized and asked for forgiveness, I wouldn't forgive you because of what you did. I think what he's saying is when you've gotten to that point, there's nothing we can do for you. You're gone. Similar to Enlightened and fallen away in that, in that extreme sense. Uh, he's just acknowledging this, this group is willfully, uh, looking at the goodness of God and not just rejecting it, but calling it the work of Satan. That, that that's super. So for me, one thing I've had people over the years, I'm sure you have too, who come to you and said, I'm just so torn up inside because I think I've committed the unforgivable sin. To which I respond, you've just proved you didn't. I mean, just the fact that you're worried about this means you haven't. Because you wouldn't even be concerned. You wouldn't even be sensitive. You wouldn't be, like, you know. And then you can get into to explain, like, what this means. But sometimes people can hear that and think, oh, I've done it. No, you haven't. Because you wouldn't be going, oh, I've done it, if you have. You'd be so resistant and so against. But I want to be careful there and recognize that we aren't the ones who decide that. There's obviously stories, we've heard them and we praise God for them of people who've resisted the work of God for many years, who have actively opposed it, who through God's grace and an amazing series of events and whatever have come to understand the grace of God, have turned, have been forgiven and are following him. And so we don't we don't want to be the people that decide, we don't decide, you know, who it is that has crossed the line, who it is that, you know, has fallen away and can't turn like we don't decide that. What we do is follow Jesus and recognize we want to be the people who, you know, in God's grace are honest about our sin and are following him and trying to acknowledge his, you know, his work around us. I'll repeat it.
4: 19, just ready to turn 20. And there was a good friend of mine that made the same commitment at the same time. And it's been hard. Like we were together on fire for who God was in our yeah. in our youth, and He's turned away, and I think for me, and I think with Mimi's question, I think some of that comes from people that you love, seeing yeah. them walk away from God, and you're going, yeah. you're reading these hard things, and you're going, yeah. is there no hope, you know, mm-hmm. you know, because for me, seeing that, like, it threw me off for a while. I'm not talking like a few weeks or months. I mean, like years, it threw me off. Like, like not that I wasn't following Jesus, but I was really like, to see that happen was devastating. So, yeah.
0: Thanks for that context, Brad. And I, I hear your heart there. And I think it's important to know that the, the loss and the struggle and the hurt and the. that... God feels that very deeply too. And this friend of yours and maybe others in our lives, Like, I believe that God continues to go after them. I mean, one of the amazing things is that unfortunately sometimes people have taken scriptures like that and used it almost as an excuse to write people off. Or even to decide, okay, I guess we know they're gone. What we see in scripture is a God who is consistently more long-suffering than I am, more patient than I am, more gracious than I am, that God will, will follow after people into very dark spots. We just know that's true. And so we continue to pray. I mean, we're dismayed by that. But we continue to pray that, that somehow, somewhere, that their story isn't over yet. And there's a Jesus who loves them and a spirit who's following them. And we pray that there will come a day when they, they will turn. And, and we weep for them. And we intercede for them. Um, and we don't give up on them because I don't believe Jesus has given up on them. But I, I do, that struggle there is, is very real. It's very real. Other questions? Cameron, you have a question?
4: Uh, yes. Uh, I was thinking about what you said about that we need to confess our sin to sins to God, to our friends, family. I was thinking, what if you say to God, I confess this sin, but say, but you, to this person you've sinned against, don't tell them what how you sinned mm-hmm. you just tell them that you sinned would that be
0: acceptable in his sight thanks Cameron great question I think the principle you want to apply there is would confessing the particular sin be hurtful to them would it make it worse you know like because I think there are times where maybe it's a sin in our hearts where you know I confess you know I want to just confess to you that I thought ill of you because you're the most annoying person I've ever met May, I'm, say, I may not, I'm trying to think of something slightly lighter-hearted, but you can imagine that there could be things that we could confess that actually don't, don't help at all. They actually harm the relationship, and they hurt them. So the principle there is restored relationship and love. And, and there may be times where a certain thing, you know, confessing would be, would be harmful to the relationship or would, would actually not help. Further this. And so that might be an example where I need a trusted friend to confess this to, who can pray for me, uh, who I can make myself accountable to, um, and, 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 you know, do that appropriately, but it may not involve confession to that person. I think that can at times be totally appropriate. Yeah. Thank you, Cameron. That's a great question. Yeah.
4: On the, on, while we're talking about sin, I I guess I've been thinking about this for a while that I'm wondering if war is a sin because there is lots of death, lots of hatred, lots of lies, but it, yes, again, I'm wondering if that is a sin.
0: Great. Thank you, Cameron. Poof. War is the result absolutely of sin and we look forward to the day where there will be no Wars, where people will not kill other people in the name of anything, in the name of their religion, in the name of their country, or personal greed or gain or whatever. So obviously wars are a result of sin. Absolutely, 100%. I don't think you can really argue anything different in that sense. But where, where, where it gets tricky is there, and there definitely is camps on this one, in the Christian faith, would be those who would say there's just war or there's wars that could be justified uh, under uh, a moral principle so that it would be under certain conditions, it would be justified to go to war with a certain nation or, or something like that. And then there would be Christians, maybe from the Anabaptist tradition or the Mennonite tradition, which is Anabaptist, who would argue that under no circumstances should a Christian ever take up arms against another person Certainly not for a country and not for God. And so you have quite a, there can be quite a difference. A great conversation starter, can I just say it on the side, would be to go and watch Hacksaw Ridge together about a man who, a real life individual who, out of his own conviction of nonviolence, entered the war to save lives. A powerful conversation starter and it might be a, an opportunity to talk about that. But there are quite, quite a few uh, differences there. What we see or at least those two main ones. Um, now, the argument in just war side is obviously very few countries will ever go to war that they don't think is just. They will justify it. So then, you know, are the parameters in place and what qualifies as a just war and all that? And it, it was a question that the church didn't really grapple with for the first 300 years of Christian history because <laughs> for the first 300 years of Christian history, Christians were just being slaughtered by the government. And we never had to ask that question. It wasn't until Christians got in power through Constantine that we then had to wrestle with the morality of actually being the one who can pull the trigger, actually being the one who has the army at their beck and call. And so Christians had to grapple with that. And there are obviously strong opinions on that. But I think in general, Cameron, we would say that wars are fundamentally against the heart of God. And the, the people who die in war, not only the, those who are carrying arms, but the devastating effect that that has on women, on children, on communities, both at home and abroad, the, the, the kind of devastation is absolutely counter to what God desires for his world, for his creation, and for people. And so we work toward peace. Blessed are the peacemakers, right? This is the work of Jesus. We we want to be peacemakers in the world, not people who support war. Can I just leave it at that? Thanks, Cameron. Any other questions? Just a few more minutes. Olin.
2: So we're, we're talking a lot about um, sin and forgiveness and all that. The question I would have on this matter would it be, what defines sin for us? What is, what is sin? Is there, like, How do we define what that is? Yeah. Is it black and white or is it, is it gray? Or, or is there anything we can look to to define that for us so we know?
0: Thank you, Olin. That's terrific. So I think that, um, let's start with the basics. God's character, anything that's out of line with God's character and who he is, is sin. How do we know that, though? primarily through the revelation that he's given to us through Jesus Christ and through his word. And so what God has revealed to us in Jesus and written to us in this book is what defines for us who God is and therefore how we should live. There are obviously things that are clearly laid out. I mean, just no debate. This is sin. This is wrong and 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 you know there might be obviously there's some debates over what those things are but in general there's things that are as you put it very black and white and uh you know so you know the ten commandments comes to mind but loving god loving others you know those, those things are kind of laid out and in general we all would say there there is there is right there is wrong um, even those who may not acknowledge a lot of right and wrong you don't have to talk very long to find out that they actually do acknowledge it so But where, where and and this is really important, where we perhaps struggle a little bit more is in areas where we may disagree on what is right and wrong. And there's a bit of a, if I can put it this way, a bit of a bandwidth in there. So there's clearly things that are contrary to God's law. But then there are also clearly things, we see this in scripture, where it is in the realm of Christian freedom. In the covenant church, we hold Christian freedom very highly. And we recognize that there may be things that for you, due to your circumstance, due to your background, due to your conviction, even due to the way you understand Scripture, that would be sin for you that may not be sin for me. Lots of discussion around that. An easy example that we don't care about would be a conversation that Paul seemed to have every time he turned around with Jewish or Gentile Christians around the eating of meat or the practicing of certain holidays, certain sacred days, or whether you keep Sabbath or not anymore. These were big, big deals for them. Not such a big deal for most of us. And so Paul would often say to them, look, you need to do what, you know, kind of what your conviction and what your heart says, but also not judge others who don't do that. So he'd say, one person regards every day alike. One person regards a day special unto the Lord. They each do it to the Lord. And then, you know, on the subject of food, there was even a time in Romans where he says, you know what you believe about this stuff? Just keep it to yourself. Don't cause division over it. the, The kingdom of God is not eating and drinking. It's, you know, righteousness and love and, I'm misquoting it, peace, you know. And and so he tried to help them understand that there are times when, you know, sin sin for one person based on their conscience, based on, you know, their background, it may be sin for them, but the other person may be free to do it. Those are in those areas where I think there's Christian freedom. Another one example, I think James says, to the person who knows the good they're supposed to do and doesn't do it, that to them that is sin. Well, that's going to depend on context, right? I'm not going to be held responsible for ignoring someone in need that I never saw, but you might be if you saw them and ignored them. You know? So there's going to be con- things where it's context and there's going to be a bandwidth of Christian freedom. And the struggle sometimes in Christian community happens in that bandwidth of Christian freedom, where we struggle with, like, if it's wrong for me, I tend to think if it's wrong for me, it's wrong for everybody. How do I practice um, a sort of a theology of Christian freedom that says, this is wrong for me, but I'm going to allow, from what I read in Scripture, that there may be Christians who... Think differently about this than I do and practice this differently than I do. And am and I I'm willing to acknowledge that as a Christian brother and sister, there's going to be some differences in here and maybe seek to understand why they believe it's sin or not sin? And how can I practice that in a way that's grace-filled? And yet I can still follow the convictions that God has given me. And uh, so I think that's really a conversation that happens in Christian community together. In a spirit of grace, recognizing that whether we're right or we're wrong on some of these things, Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for the sins of the whole world, including our own misunderstandings and missteps. And so under the grace of God, we can engage in community and and help each other. There probably are times, Olin, where we need to challenge a person who says, well, this isn't sin for me. Say, well, really? Really, I think that's kind of out of line with what Jesus wants. And do you see the effect it's having on your life? But guess what? There might also be other times when a person says, well, I can't do that. That's against God's word. And you say, really? Let's press into that a little bit because you know what? You might be you might be under some sort of thing from your background that actually this is not something that that would be a sin. It's something in an area of Christian freedom. So we can go both ways on that. Thanks, Owen. Well, let's wrap it up there. I know there's more questions and, and I hope that uh, we've sparked some more today. And we can be the kind of community that is willing to ask these questions, willing to throw them out there, willing to engage and dialogue and seek deeper and buy a book, you know, or search Dr. Google or whatever. But dig in and let's, let's be the kind of community that's open to these kind of questions. So thanks for engaging today. Can I just pray for you as we leave? Jesus, thanks for this amazing group of people that I love very much and the work that you're doing in our lives and our hearts. We long to be the kind of people who are just honest about who we are but even more honest and more excited about the grace you are pouring into our lives. And I pray that we would be the kind of community that is just really and truly open to the people around us, the people in our valley, the people in our lives and our families, wherever they are in their spiritual journey, that we'd be open to them, to their questions, to their wounds, to their sin, to their agony, and that we would be consistently offering them the hope that is found only in you, inviting them to come and follow, to come and see, to come and experience all that you have for us. We long to see more people experiencing your grace and your forgiveness. And I pray that we'd be the kind of people that just facilitate that in our daily witness, in our times together as a community, in everything that we do. We bless you and thank you for being so amazing, for loving us so much. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, God bless you and I I hope you have a terrific week. May we walk in the light this week. And I look forward to seeing you next week at 10.30. God bless you.